if they can't bring it down to your level and help you understand what it is they're going to do, you want to understand what are you going to do with my body? And to an investment person, what are you going to do with my money? This is my future. This is my livelihood. So, yeah. So, you know, frequently the problem and the approach don't revolve around the mechanics of, of what you're of what you're doing. It's the it's the result you're delivering to someone. It's it's the outcome. It's the so when we talk about point of view, you want to you know here's Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our Be the Go-To mini-series with Teresa Lina. If you missed part one, please go back, hear about when she was at Accenture and helped grow that business line to over $850 million a year in revenue, teaching at Stanford, helping all sorts of startups and all her consulting clients now. If you haven't been to ApolloMethod.com, please go there, check out the book, sign up. But Teresa, can you talk more about this concept of point of view? I think a lot of people can guess what that means, but we'd love to hear kind of the deeper level thinking you've done around it. Yes. So a lot of people, when they go out into the market, they really just talk about their products and services. And they might have a little bit of educational component. Now with content marketing, we see a lot of people doing this where you know they're, they're teaching about some concept or they write articles, they write uh, blog posts, they do podcast interviews and so forth. But uh, the, the challenge with the way a lot of people are approaching this is they, there's lots of little different ideas that they throw out there like toilet paper thrown at the wall to see what sticks. Oh, which one of my articles is going to get the most views and the most shares? Uh, but what they what they're really lacking is an overarching theme to what it is they do in the marketplace. And so a key part of going out there and establishing yourself as the go-to in a market is having a very strong uh, point of view on what's happening in the market. Now, this has nothing to do with you. Put yourself in the role of, say, an analyst who's uh, observing what's happening in the market. But uh, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a market you focus on. There's a problem in that market that you want to take ownership of on behalf of the market. So the first thing you do is you decide, you know, what is our point of view on what's happening with this problem and where the market is going? So you have some, you you study this problem, you have a vision for where things are going and what the market needs to be doing. And then you develop your point of view, which consists of number one, what is the problem? Why is there a problem? So why why is there a big problem in the market and and what what's the fallout from that problem so for example not everybody may have heard of this company it's the name is salesforce it's a gigantic customer relationship management software company it's huge and it was started only about 20 years ago and the person who started the company is Mark Benioff, who many people may recognize his name. He's a billionaire. He's very, very generous. He's donated a lot of money to different causes, including within San Francisco. But back in the late 1990s, he saw a, an industry of uh, Salesforce management and customer relationship management software where companies would have to spend millions of dollars to implement the software. And by the time they got it implemented, the world had changed and they had to start all over again. SAP, 
Siebel. There were a lot of companies out there, big enterprise software companies that you had to spend, an army of consultants had to come in to implement this software. And Mark Benioff said, this is this is ridiculous. It doesn't need to be this way. He saw that the cloud was going to be coming along and that it would be possible for companies, even large companies, to store their even their most precious data in the cloud and access it from the cloud. Now, we take this for granted today, but there was a time when that idea was considered completely crazy. People said, investors even said, there's no way big companies are going to hand their customer data and their most private sensitive data over to the cloud to some infrastructure provider to let them manage it. And Mark Benioff said, no, he saw where the market was going. He said, it has to be that way. And so he got up there and he didn't, now he was offering Salesforce automation software It was and uh, simple customer relationship soft management software where, you know, it, it's where you stored all of the names of your customers, all their account information. It's what Salesforce salespeople use to track what they were doing, uh, who they had talked to, what the status of the sale was, et cetera. And it was very simple and stripped down at that time. But he did not get up at conferences and talk about his company, salesforce.com. He got up and talked about the end of software. He, in fact, he created a logo that looked like the Ghostbusters uh, big red circle with a slash through it with software in the middle of it. And he said, software is dead. Soft. Now, this was heresy at that time. And he, I was at conferences, technology conferences. He'd be up there talking brashly and confidently, and he'd practically get booed off the stage. People thought he was being ridiculous. And, but he, he, was, he had no qualms about getting up there and saying something very controversial. Uh, software is dead. You've got to stop being dependent on these big enterprise software packages. It's going to be in the cloud. Uh, this is where the market is going, get ready. And so he had a very clear point of view on the problem. He said, companies cannot keep spending millions of dollars to implement this stuff. Uh, this is going to change. Get on board because the train has left the station. So that he, he had a very clear point of view about what the problem was, this uh, slow, expensive implementation, and then what needed to be done. We need to move all of this into the cloud where someone else is taking care of all the functions and features. Somebody else is, is keeping the software updated. You don't have to buy these fancy maintenance packages. You don't have to spend, you know, have legions of people constantly updating this. Be months, maybe years behind in updates to what you need. Let somebody else do all that. You just run your business. Business. So that was his point of view. He didn't even talk about his company. Well, let me ask you this, knowing that there are different ways to have a point of view, different ways to differentiate, right? Like, mm -hmm. sometimes it is a different product, you know, Elon Musk comes out with cars that run on electricity instead of gasoline, you know, it's absolutely mm -hmm. a different product. And yet, in other industries, I hear these studies about people who, essentially, they offer the same thing that they used to offer and that their competitors offer. But because they got so innovative in their financing options that nobody else had ever considered in their industry, and they were doing what none of their competitors dared to do, mm -hmm. all of a sudden they they really dominate. You know, it's like they serve the client in a in a different way than the obvious way on the product. Right. So, like for me, you know, continuing our conversation before, like in many ways, you know, buying institutional quality real estate investments, there's not a huge there's not a huge difference. Like we are going to follow the Warren Buffett principles like Brookfield 
and, and we hope to do better than the rest by having the long-term view and buying stuff that's not popular, right? But this is like, hey, instead of a 5% return, now you got a six, or instead of a seven and a half, we got an eight and a half, right? This is not, we're not doubling anybody's returns with this stuff. Maybe you make a couple, three points more, mm -hmm. possibly. And so we're having to think more of what, you know, the financing options of like, what can we innovate? What can we have a point of view on other than because we can't, we're not going to change the world of real estate per se. We can do the best within a band, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Any thoughts for back to that? You're a home builder, you're, you sell insurance. In our case, we sell real estate passive income, you know, any advice for taking a point of view and like really looking at that where the future is going to be if you know the the home builder is still going to build a home like the other people like the kind of homes that sell in that area right but other ideas on taking a point of view other than you know we're going to make our you know home out of styrofoam or something right. yeah. you know yeah so the key the key to figuring out how you want to position yourself in the market is you know you pick a market that you want to focus on and you figure out what common critical problem is nobody else addressing. So your point of view is built around this common critical urgent problem. It needs to be urgent because otherwise there's no incentive for people to take action. And you could be talking about this for the next five years before people finally get their head around it. So it's what common critical urgent problem. So in your case, it's you know helping these millionaires, these self-made people, have some ongoing security while they figure out how they want to live out the rest of their life. And so the the message is around the outcome of where of of what they want to achieve, not the little incremental pieces. So the key is figuring out a unique approach, a unique solution to that problem that nobody else is providing. And that's far enough out ahead of where things are that it'll take a while for other people to catch up to you. And so that by the time other people catch up, you're then staying ahead. That's part of the accelerate part of the methodology, the last phase. But so back back in your initial launch phase, you're looking at what, what market do I want to serve and own? What market problem do I want to own? I want to be associated with that problem and known for that problem. What is the what is the crux of it? And you know, you do enough, you study enough of what's happening out there that you understand better than anybody where this is headed. And you develop your point of view about what people need to be doing about that problem. And then you define your unique approach to solving that problem that delivers a result. It delivers an outcome. It's not just functions and features. It's not just, oh, our homes have you know, insulation in between the walls where other wall, other homes don't have that. Yes, that might be a piece of what makes you different, a point of differentiation. But the fundamental, the let's say for a home builder, I don't know that industry well, but let's say somebody says, okay, in our market, uh, the, the problem is cheap, cheap construction. Oh, go ahead. You're you know what? I actually think just because I have a couple of very well-to-do clients, sure. you know, they're cutting the family from this world. Okay. And it is the customer experience. Like the homes are great. The homes are great, but the customer experience is terrible. Missed deadlines, stuff wasn't done exactly right, doesn't get fixed fast enough. Like the customer experience for, for getting homes built is, I mean, it's almost as frustrating as like when you get an app developed. Okay. No. Okay. Like so nowhere a deadline has never been made, right? Let's let's take that. So maybe maybe the the problem is 
by the time their home gets built, they hate it. They hate their house. By the time they're moving, they hate in, they hate their builder. They hate, tell you that. Builder. they hate their builder. They hate their house. They're they they're stressed out because they don't know if like I have a friend whose home they she had a home built. It was a terrible experience. Later, they decided to take a wall out. They found garbage in between the the drywall in the in the in the wall. She said it was just a horrific experience. So. If the if the builder comes out to the market and says, "Look, building a home should be a joyful, relaxing, life affirming experience. This is your dream that we're creating for you. We're we're dream makers. We're dream builders." And so, you know, you could talk all day long about the. In fact, a, a big acid test for having a really great point of view. And we're talking just about what, why there's a problem and what should be done about it is can you get up at a conference or in front of a seminar or an audience where you're not selling anything and you're not allowed to talk about you? It can't be a sales pitch, but can you talk credibly about the problem and what needs to be done about it? So that builder could be up at a, at a, a home expo you know, event and talking about, look, Here's what happens for most people when they build their home. And they he, he or she warns the audience, here's what you're going to experience for most builders. You're going to you're going to your budget's going to triple by the time you're done with with the project. You're going to hate your builder because here's what's happened along the way. You're going to yada 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 it ticks off all these things. The fundamental message is, you know, the problem with the, the, the big problem with building your own home is the horrific experience of it. And then what, what you need to do is you need to work, you need, your builder needs to do these things. You should get this from your builder. When you're shopping for a builder, ask these questions, make sure they're doing these things, demand this of them. And, you know, those people walk out from that audience thinking, oh my God, you know, First of all, I got tremendous value out of this because you taught me so much that's going to come in so handy for my next building experience. Number two, they're going to have all these criteria that most builders won't be able to live up to. And then, of course, in the back pocket of that person who gave the talk, they have a unique approach that they take to building homes that gives home builders peace of mind. And so, you know, what you need is peace of mind. You need to be working with builders who give you this kind of service. The, they, they should be handing you a schedule of exactly what's going to happen when, what what it's going to cost when. I don't, <laughs> and they should meet it. What? A schedule that they actually meet. Like, yes, yeah. I mean, and they should have like, policies. So we, they should say, and you know what? If we don't meet this schedule, there is a difference. we pay you, okay? There is a difference, Jeter. We built, we built this house. We're out here southeast of Park City in the mountains, right? So I could snowmobile, snowboard in the national forest here, right? And we built this home, moved in last August, and it was literally last week. The builder is still coming back because, like, our one wall that faces the forest is all these, like, eight-inch glass doors uh-huh. for, like, kind of the whole wall of the house, right? Uh-huh. And the doors don't shut. Like, like you really have to refund them. It's like 11 months. It's 11 months and he's still fixing stuff like that after everything supposedly all done. Yeah. Why did you have to figure that out? Why didn't they figure that out the day the doors went in? Right. Why did I, and why did I have to beg him for 11 months to come back and fix what should have been, you know, it's interesting just as you say this, and I know we should, we should wrap up for part two of the mini series and start looking at part three. But as you're saying all this, I realized 
in my space, finance guys use big fancy words to make everybody else feel dumb mm -hmm. as so they can feel good about themselves. And they alienate people. Like I've got these like really quite wealthy friends mm -hmm. who don't want to talk about investments and investment funds because they've been made to feel so dumb. Like normally extremely confident individuals. Right. But between the acronyms and the long words, they have drastically overcomplicated which are not concepts that are not necessarily that complicated. And they don't want to look dumb to admit they don't know what that acronym is. Right. You know, and so if and I do, even just spoke in plain English, trust? I'd probably be helpful. That's right. And and do people trust what they don't understand? No, of course not. I mean, you go to a doctor, you've got a chronic illness. Do you trust that doctor if they can't bring it down to your level and help you understand what it is they're going to do? You want to understand what are you going to do with my body? And to an investment person, what are you going to do with my money? This is my future. This is my livelihood. So, yeah. So, you know, frequently the problem and the approach don't revolve around the mechanics of, of what you're of what you're doing. It's the it's the result you're delivering to someone. It's it's the outcome. It's the so when we talk about point of view, you want to you know, here's the comment. Here's the problem. Here's what and here's why it's a problem. So, you know, the problem is when you go to investment advisors, they're, they're, they've got, it's like Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. You don't know what the heck's going on. You don't, and you know, you kind of just trust them, but you don't really trust them. You feel like you have no other option. It should not be that way. You know, if you feel that way, if you don't feel trust, you're not getting the peace of mind that the whole program is supposed to be offering you in the first place. So you should you know, if if you if you aren't fully understanding what they're doing, if you don't feel completely in the know about what they're doing, if you don't have complete peace of mind, then you're not actually going to relax. You're not getting what you're paying for. What you need is to be working with advisors who really help you understand what they're doing. Uh, they keep you in the loop, and they you know you truly feel a partnership with them. You feel that they really are in it with you and that your pain is their pain. So yeah, you know, I could go on, but that the fundamental the fundamental architecture of a point of view is here's the problem, here's why it's a problem. Not just that there's a problem, but this is why this is why it's creating a, an issue and you know, you want to create that sense of compelling need to, to resolve it. And then here's what you need to be doing about it. Later, the third part of the, of the, of the recipe is your unique approach to solving it. But the point of view itself, if you think of, I, I describe in the book, a message architecture that you need for any business. It's why there's a problem, what needs to be done about it, how you've uniquely solved the problem. The first two pieces are your point of view. The third piece is your solution. Well, I love it. Everybody, if you want to learn more about this, go to ApolloMethod.com, get the book, sign up for Teresa's stuff, and, uh, and tune in for part three of the mini series here. Thanks, everyone.